Hi everyone. Um, as Emma said, my name's Anna and I'm going to be reading God's word to you tonight. Uh, the first reading can be found on page six of the zines and it's from Isaiah chapter six, verses one to seven. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And on the next page, our second reading is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate that the indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, good, good evening, both here and on live stream. I'm Rob Forsyth. My normal haunt is the early morning at 8.30, but it's great to be here at 6 o'clock with you guys as well. And to lead off the years, we hope, feast of teaching and understanding. Let's hope so. Yeah, whatever, boring. 
Have you ever said that or thought that about God? Could you be bored with God? Even though you'd never say it or even realize it, could it be the case that being bored with God is deflating your Christian discipleship? Today we begin a short January series called First Aid to Discipleship. We're looking how to deal with some of the big blockers to living as fruitful disciples of Jesus and rendering first aid, as it were. This is part of our big picture here, AIM, here at uh, Churchill Anglican, which we made explicit, explicit in our strategic plan we talked about last year. The aim of fostering deeper discipleship, that is, enabling each of us to be less shallow in discipleship of Jesus. What do we mean by discipleship? Well, the word disciple means a learner, a pupil, or an adherent of a teacher. There are two basic aspects of being a disciple, learning and loyalty. A disciple is a learner who is loyal to a particular teacher or master, who trusts, trusts them, who follows them and their teaching. Being a disciple was a common notion in New Testament days. We read in the New Testament of disciples of John the Baptist, disciples of the Pharisees, and most especially we read of Jesus calling people to become his disciples. That is, become loyal to him in his teaching, to follow him. And that's what we'll be talking about in our series this month. Oddly, the word disciple is not used at all in any of the New Testament letters. But in the Acts of the Apostles, it's all over the place and seems to be used the same way today we use the word Christian. It's a general descriptor of believers. Interestingly, we can even see the beginning of the, of the change. In Acts 11.26 we read, quote, it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Not by themselves, by the way, but by outsiders trying to work out what to do with this weird group that turned up in their midst. How are disciples made? In Acts, we see how disciples are made. In Acts 14, 21, Paul and Barnabas are in Asia Minor, and we read, after they had proclaimed the good news to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, onto Achaemen, Antioch. Disciples are made by proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As people come to believe in the Lord Jesus, they become loyal learners of him in whom they put their trust. What do disciples of Jesus keep on learning? Um, discipleship is not a, a moment, it's a life, a life journey, a life project. I think there are three areas in which disciples of Jesus continue their learning. Firstly, they learn about what made them disciples in the first place, the gospel, about the Lord Jesus Christ, about God himself, his dealing with his people and so forth. They learn how to grow in their belief. Secondly, they learn not just what, how to grow in belief, but also how to see, how to see. That is, how to see themselves and the world around them in a fresh way in the light of the fact that God has raised Jesus from the dead and he is Lord. In fact, 
To living the Christian life requires discernment, judgment. Even before you decide what to do in a certain situations, you need to understand what is the situation actually that you're dealing with. What, what is going on here? So disciples need to learn to see. And thirdly, disciples need to learn how to live. How to live lives of Christian virtue and purpose. How to put off the former manners of life and perhaps that of the society around them and put on new, the new self created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Learning to believe, learning to see right, learning to live well. That's my take on what a disciple's project is. When would the life of a disciple need first aid? When it's going nowhere or falling back into old ways, unlearning, unlearning God, unlearning how to see aright, unlearning how to live well. In our first Aid to Discipleship series, we've chosen four issues or experiences that can derail discipleship. Next week, Rowan Patterson will be here to speak on first aid to discipleship, quote, I'm worried I'll miss out. The week after that, Justin returns with, I'm worried about first aid to discipleship, quote, God is silent. And then the one I'm looking forward to, finally, uh, Justin got, got a second one, the, third, the fourth in the series, Justin also speaking as rector of our church, first aid to discipleship, quote, church is disappointing. I wonder whether it'll be us or him he's going to lay the blame on to wait and see. So I'm, not, I'm looking forward to that one very much indeed. Well, today, first aid to discipleship, I'm bored with God. Being bored with something or someone is to be weary of them, find them uninteresting, dull or tedious. You may have that experience even as I speak. If you are weary of God, found him uninteresting, dull or tedious, you can see how the whole energy and life would go out of living as a disciple. Well, as a disciple of Jesus anyway, it would be like turning the power off. Like one of those waving inflatable tube men you see at service stations on Parramatta Road and elsewhere. Um, turn the blower off and it deflates and finally collapses. If it happened suddenly, you might notice it, but I've heard of those who ever so slowly got bored with God and did not notice it until they were deflated. I just grew out of it. They say, well, I just lost interest. It bored me and discipleship deflated. Well, what can we say about this? What first aid can we administer? Before I go further, I need to make an important cautionary note. Sometimes feeling bored, even with God, is just the result of being tired or run down or not well or even a symptom of wider issues of anxiety or depression. Not a spiritual issue at all, if you know what I mean. So it's important not to over-diagnose yourselves and to be patient. But leaving that aside, important though it is, 
what first aid can we administer to discipleship that's in danger of deflating because I'm bored with God? Well, we need to start diagnosing the problem. Although there are many causes that one might become, might create the context in which I am bored with God, uh, this evening I'm going to choose just one. Your God is too small. You are bored with God because your God is too little. What you're missing is the reality of God. I don't think anybody can be bored with that, actually. But being bored means you're out of touch with the reality of God. Or worse still, you've made your own God who doesn't have any reality at all. Let me explain. I was going to say that the problem with God is that he is invisible. God is invisible, but to call that a problem would be misguided. It's the very nature of God in his omnipresence to be invisible. In Romans 1.20, Paul writes of a paradox, actually. He says, God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, in other words, his very divinity itself and his power, are invisible qualities. Though he says they can be seen clearly, not from being seen directly, but, quote, being understood from what's being made. American theologian Catherine Sonderegger uh, reflects on this remarkable uniqueness of God's invisible deity. And this is the first of the three quotes on page two of the Zine. And if you're at home, please download the order of service sometime, not now, you'll be disrupted. Because th these are quite, they're quotes you want to look at again, I think. They're those kind of quotes. Sonderegger says this, and I quote, the deeper point that the Apostle Paul presses upon us in Romans 1.20 is this. It is a secular world we inhabit and gaze upon. A world in which the one God is not visible as an object or a local place within the cosmos. And just this is his invisible deity present as such to the world. The true God, the one Lord, can exist in this mode. He shares this with no creature and with no power of created cosmos. In his unique majesty, he can be the hidden one and revealed as such. This is his omnipresence. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 6.15 in describing the God who will bring about the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ at the proper time. He says, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in inapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. That is, God's holiness, Paul says, is so shining, so bright, that it's an inapproachable light. If God was to be visible in his holiness and divinity, it would blow everything away. 
In fact, by the way, God's invisibility is why our explanations of the natural world can be entirely natural. Not that he's absent, but he is invisible. Now, the point is this. Because God in his holiness and humility, God is invisible to the world he's present to, he can quite easily be ignored and, and uh, taken no notice of, or quite easily be thought of in inadequate and misleading ways. Sure, God has revealed truth about himself in Holy Scripture and in his Son, even though, as we'll see in a moment, even with all of that, we see only as a reflection in a mirror, and we only know, only know in part. Despite that revelation of himself, it's so easy to think of the invisible God in inadequate ways. In fact, I'm convinced one of the main causes of boredom with God is that we think of the invisible God in such inadequate ways. Your God is little. When we replace the reality of the living God with our own boring little gods, there is trouble. Discipleship begins to deflate. What boring little gods do I have in mind? Let me give you three. Each is based on a truth, but an unbalanced view of that truth about God. It is so unbalanced that the God is really not just a little God. Here's the first one. My first little God who's boring is God, my invisible friend. You've heard of invisible friends? Well, God is my invisible friend. Now, the truth in this is that God, in Christ, God is your dear Father. By his grace, you know him. By the Holy Spirit, Christ dwells in you. But these wonderful truths can mislead us to an overly familiar view, small view of God, if misunderstood. We feel we have God pretty clearly in our grasp. And then what's missing is awareness of the mystery and immensity of God. God in all his glory can slip into becoming just God, my invisible friend. It's very easy to become bored with a God who's no more than you can imagine. Let me say that again. It's easy to become bored with a God who is no more than you can imagine. If that's your view, you've forgotten Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians that we only now see in part. 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see only as a reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Or his description in Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. I've always been impressed by C. Fitzsimons Allison's warning that simplistic over-familiarity easily leads to unbelief. This is the second of my quotes on page two. He writes, when one speaks of Jesus as though one had just finished lunch with him, many will forbear 
using his name at all. When believers speak as though they see not a St Paul through a glass darkly, but even now as face to face, many listeners become sceptical in the face of such exaggerated certainties. Second, little boring God, the one-sided, toothless God. The truth here is that God is love and rich in mercy, which is a wonderful truth of the gospel. But if that truth becomes a mere commonplace, or the only thing we can ever say about God, then it can slide into a caricature. Sonda Reger again, my third quote, she diagnoses the problem and says what's missing. I quote, the attempt in modern Protestant circles especially, but not exclusively, to domesticate God, to find him only, only the kindly, only the friendly, only the avuncular, is nearly proverbial. Despite efforts to remove such smug domesticity, the one-sided, toothless God lives on. What's missing? She goes on. While the goodness of God ought never be impinged, ever be impunged, impunged, while the goodness of God never be we must, we might all agree that a Christianity that is only hospitable, only useful and edifying, has not taken full measure of the living God. He is good, goodness itself, she writes, and he is holy. Bending down in awe before the almighty God is the first act of proper piety. End of quote. And as we'll see in a moment, the grace of God only has its depth and wonder in the light of the burning, searing holiness of God. Thirdly, the vague, diffuse God. This is the other extreme from God, my invisible friend. God, the vague, diffuse, the mystery. Now God is vague and diffuse. Now when God is vague and diffuse, our following of him can be vague and diffuse. We may even in hidden ways want him to remain that way. After a while, believing in a vague and diffuse God may well drift to be like believing in the planet Jupiter. It's nice to know it's there, but unless you're really into, into things like that, it doesn't matter that much. God becomes a little God, boring. While this vague and diffuse view could not be accused of speaking to familiarity of God or forgetting God's mystery, it completely fails to come to terms with the reality that God has made him known in personal and concrete ways in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ as well as in the witness of the wider scriptures. Well, faced with these and no doubt other boring little gods, or perhaps little boring gods, but a better way to put it, the question becomes, how do I regain a non-boring God? 
In preparation for this sermon, I asked myself, where in Holy Scripture is there anyone dealing with being bored with God? And I, I, the Scripture is full of people filled with the praise of God. It's full of pe people filled with the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, even being angry with God. But as far as I can tell, I couldn't find anybody bored with God in a way that's helpful to us anyway. The nearest thing is the situation of the readers of Hebrews, a book of the New Testament. These readers were not, original readers, were not bored with God as such, but they were tired and dispirited. After enthusiastically embracing the gospel of Jesus, even in the face of persecution, some 15 years before this book is written, these Jewish believers are now showing signs, distinct signs of being worn down. The writer tells them they are no longer trying to understand. They stop learning, you see. He puts it literally, they have sluggish ears, was the word he uses in Greek. And as the pressure and troubles are continuing and increasing, after all, they're in Rome around the time of Nero, the danger of losing confidence and fading is real. So the writer has sent them what he, he calls, quote, my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Uh, it's a kind of written sermon, that's what word of exhortation seems to mean. He writes it as their pastor to strengthen them. Perhaps you might think I should have just read out Hebrews to you instead of writing one of my own. What does he do? Well, he turns up the volume. If I can mix my metaphors, he takes the truths of Christ and represents them with a vivid depth and colour. He awakens his dull, sleepy readers to the immensity of what they've come to be part of and the great peril they're facing by putting themselves in the danger of faltering. This is, I believe, the great antidote to being bored with God. Just the reading we had was chapter 12, a bit of that just a moment ago from Hebrews 12. Now, I don't have time to go into detail, but two great themes stand out. In fact, as they do in the whole of to the Hebrews. They are the greatness of Christ and the searing holiness of God. The greatness of Christ and the searing holiness of God. Let me deal with the second first, although you can't, strictly speaking, separate them entirely. And we saw some of that, by the way, in the first reading from Isaiah 6. Because his readers are Hebrews, he puts his remarks in the language of Israel's experience, their ancestors' experience. In Hebrews 12, 18 to 21, the writer tells them they have not come to the terrifying experience their ancestors had when they met God at Mount Sinai in the Exodus. He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to the trumpet blast and such a voice speaking words that those who heard it beg no further words be spoken to them. He concludes even, the sight was so terrifying that Moses, even Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. 
You've not come to that, he says. You've come to something even greater and more wonderful as you've come to Christ. Not Sinai there, but now to the very holiest of holies in heaven itself, as he puts it. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church or assembly of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Wow. Does that mean now that God is, is, is less holy? Can we turn down the dial a bit now? It's, it's more relaxed. No way. The next words are these. Verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned from earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? And he ends verse 28, 29. Therefore, he says, we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That's the New Testament speaking. This is a Christian view. You may notice that the citation, the last bit's in inverted commas, our God is consuming fire. That's because the editors of the NIV that I'm using understood that to be a citation from Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 24, where Moses told the Israelites to be careful not to forget the covenant the Lord their God made with them and serve other gods. Why not? Verse 24 of, of Deuteronomy 4. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God's exclusive, passionate holiness will brook no rival. Now, by this time, we are light years away from the invisible friend, from the toothless, one-sided one, from the vague and diffuse one. And the reason I've taken you to this this evening because I'm convinced that one of the greatest needs of contemporary disciples of Jesus today in our secular, um, acidically eating at faith society is a fresh vision of the holiness of God. The burning, majestic holiness of God is the antidote to I'm bored with God. Let me say that again. The burning majestic holiness of God is the antidote to I'm bored with God. But that's not the only theme in Hebrews. It's not even the major theme of Hebrews. The major theme is the greatness of what this God has done in these latter days through his son. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times, in many ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe, is how the discourse begins. And most importantly, the great thing is that God has appointed this Son as a great high priest for us, 
to become one of us to represent us on our behalf. We didn't appoint him. We had no say in it. We couldn't have done it. He did it in order to offer the great sacrifice of himself to cleanse us, our consciences of deeds that lead to death, that we may serve the living God. That's the great theme of Hebrews, the great theme that the author represents to his tired readers. It's what's in mind in the words of chapter 12, 24 of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The result of this is, as the writer puts it in one of the high points of Hebrews, Hebrews has a number of high points like this actually. One of the great high points is in chapter 10 and verse 19. Therefore, he says, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let's hold it there for a second, the most holy place in the earthly temple was the holy of holies, Kadosh Kadosh, the very place where God's dwelt, God's presence was most manifest. Only once a year could anybody ever go there. That's the high priest. He's now speaking of the most holy place in, as it were, God's true dwelling. This is the, holy, the holiest of holies of the God who is consuming fire, right? And the writer says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. The word confidence in Greek could also mean boldness having the face to do it. We have boldness to enter the most holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. By a new living way, he says, through the curtain. That is the curtain that keeps, protects us from the fire of God's holiness. That is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house or temple of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and full assurance that faith brings. And he goes on to talk about getting help in time of need. The point here is, yes, God is a consuming fire, and in Christ we have the confidence, the boldness, to enter the most holy place of his holy presence, to find there a caring Holy Father. Both are full volume, the holiness of God and the grace of God. Both full volume. You see, the boring God is a God who is a little bit holy and a little bit gracious. So all is well. The real God is fully holy, the consuming fire, and has appointed a great high priest for us who has ascended to the heavens, fully grace. And notice, it's not one versus the other. God, the consuming fire in his holiness, versus the great high priest. No, it's both together, both together. The Father and the Son, who is himself the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The point I'm making is the burning majestic wholeness of God and the openness, the gracious openness of acceptance to his presence by the great high priest together is the antidote to I'm bored with God. The first aid to discipleship when the deflating problem is I'm bored with God is to turn from complacent dreams to the reality of the most holy and gracious God 
and put aside your little boring gods. Now you may ask, how does what does it involve? Well, as we're going to learn throughout this year, in the practice will involve many things. It involves rich Bible reading, meditating on the, on the on Holy Scripture, the rich picture of God and His life that brings. It will mean prayer, persistent prayer life, both privately, but here as we gather as God's people and also receive the Holy Sacrament. It'll mean letting the grace of God transform you, that you live lives of deepening Christian virtue and purpose. And it will mean, as appropriate, offering a gracious witness to others as you live a life of good works. That's the program. It's always been the program, actually, but it's our program. Together, seeking to grow in deeper discipleship.